The note drove him crazy. It was simple and to the point. You're dead tomorrow. You don't make a fool of a queen and just walk out of town unscathed. She was ready to skin him alive for mocking her power, for making her trusted counselors look like a gaggle of idiots in a kingdom of monkeys. Of course, she had missed the whole point of what he had proved about where true power ultimately comes from, of course. But in her empire, her word was law. Her word was, her word was as just as injustice could get. Her word pithily announced his fate. You're dead tomorrow. This summation before the court of public opinion was unambiguous, definitive, dead tomorrow. What now, he exclaimed to no one but himself, hide and ultimately be found, give up and plead for leniency, not a good historical track record on that, run, that was it, run as fast and as far and as long as you can, buy some time, at the end of that road you can assess the damage and decide what to do next, but fear has a clever way of distorting reality. So after reading the note again, fear settled in like a yakety-yak tacky relative showing up for a week's vacation unannounced. Taking up residence in the small bedroom of his mind, fear clamored for blood, his blood. Fear blurred reality. Fear pounded faith into a fine dust, obliterating holy memories that anchored the soul. He ran hard and fast, driven all the way by fear's taunts. And then, unable to run any longer, exhausted, he fell asleep under a tree in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. Not a likely place for the God of the universe to show up. But God has made a divine career of showing up at remote outposts. Burning bushes and barns seem to be pretty good locations to him. Whatever it takes to get your attention. At the intersection of fear and exhaustion, he arrives to get you moving again, breathing again. In that moment, God was right on time because when life isn't working anymore, that's his cue. Elijah felt a nudge and the smell of fresh baked bread was in the air. 1 Kings 19. Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. Now, Elijah was living in the 9th century B.C. There was a time when There was this great struggle going on, a struggle in the political world, a struggle in the economic world, the agrarian world. Who provides us with life? Who should we bow down to and worship? And Elijah was was God's man in God's time to announce that there is one God, and that is the God who, who created us, and that is the God who we owe worship to. And so he battled against the forces of society. Forces that say, worship this, worship that. Worship what you can see and know and touch and put on a shelf somewhere 
Worship a little figure of a God who, who maybe can help you when things are, are going rough. And Elijah said, no, there's only one God who has power over everything. And he's the only one that we should worship. And so he battled in that time in the ninth century BC. And we continue that battle today. It's a battle that is waged on, on many fronts. Who do you worship? Who do you bow down to? Who do you look to when your life isn't working? Because there's only one person to look to. There's only one place to bow down. There's only one Lord and Savior to worship. By this time tomorrow, you'll be dead. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for, for dear life to Beersheba, far into the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God, take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave, exhausted. He fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Suddenly an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep. The angel of God came back, shook him awake again and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate and drank his fill and set out. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. The word of God came to him. So Elijah, what are you doing here? In many translations, it simply says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Hear, Elijah. And then Elijah, just under all of the, the, my life's not working anymore, stress and strain, he just unloads. I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Haven't you noticed, God? Nobody really cares about you anymore. People worship things they shouldn't worship. People don't even believe. People manipulate. They, they try to fix the system so it works for their benefit. And nobody pays any attention. Nobody worships you. Nobody cares. Everybody's walked away. And, and I am the only one left. You might as well just take me out of this because I'm losing my heart in this work too. He's empty. His life isn't working anymore. Then he was told, God, go stand on the mountain at attention before God. God will pass by. A hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. But God wasn't to be found in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire. But God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle and quiet whisper. What must that sound have been like, that gentle, quiet whisper? When Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak, went to the mouth of the cave and stood there. A quiet voice asked, So Elijah, now tell me, 
what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said it again. I've been working my heart out for God, the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your places of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. God said, go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, make him king over Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, make him king over Israel. Finally, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Anyone who escapes death by Hazael will be killed by Jehu. And anyone who escapes death by Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Meanwhile, I'm preserving for myself 7,000 souls, the knees that haven't bowed to the god Baal, the mouths that haven't kissed his image. You see, it's, it's when life's not working that we find out what really works. Life not working is the school God uses to teach us the important lessons not covered in the life is all under control book. It's when life's not working that our faith in, in the God who is faithful is tested and found true. Life not working does one more thing. It writes the stories we, we tell long into dark nights that warm our hearts and restore our souls. Rolling Stone magazine named it one of the 500 greatest songs of all time. In 1970, a group called the Five Stair Steps, which is a, a group of family members, sang this song, and it was on the radio all the time, and I heard it all the time back in 1970. I heard it all the time, and you did too, baby. Ooh, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, ooh child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, ooh, child, things will get brighter. Someday we'll get it together, and we'll get it all done. Someday when your head is much lighter, we'll walk in the rays of a beautiful sun. Someday when the world is much brighter, things will get brighter. Things are going to get easier. Someday. In what universe was that songwriter living? In what, on what planet does this song even make it to the charts? One of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Why? Because... Our hearts long for that in the middle of experiences of my life's not working. I'm going down. Things are coming in on all sides at me. I can't figure it out anymore. I'm in a place that I never wanted to be, dealing with people I never wanted to, to deal with, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't get brighter. It's not going to get easier, but we long for that. And in our heart of hearts, we hope there's a God who will bring us to that kind of a place because we know right down here, life's not working. There's some reasons that life doesn't work. Reason number one, life doesn't work because of people. Because people, life would be so easy if it wasn't for people. Look at the person next to you and say, life would be easy if it wasn't for you. <laughs> I know my wife thinks that sometimes when she looks at me. Oh, my. Um, okay, so the other night, I was being assistant to grandma. I was the assistant grandpa to the captain-in-chief 
the big kahuna grandma who runs the show, who makes everything happen, and I just, I'm there to assist, to make sure things, you know, don't go totally crazy, and to make sure the bill gets paid. So we decide that we're going to go out to, to this place in Williamsburg with, with three of our grandchildren, uh, Sophia nine, about to be nine soon, Olivia seven, Leela three. We decide, they take a vote, I got outvoted, we are now going to Z Pizza. I'm lactose intolerant, I don't need to be at Z Pizza. But there I am, I'm at Z Pizza. Z Pizza, the best tasting food starts with ingredients that are naturally better for you. It starts out promising, uh, and then you can even, even have them make something, and you can take it home and, and cook it in your own oven, which is kind of like DiGiorno, and, and it, it's better that way, as far as I understand, although I don't eat pizza anymore. It's just they got the right graphics, they got the right picture. They even have pizza right there, hot and ready for you when you walk in. And that's when it happened. This couple walks in to get pizza. And I just, I'm an observer of life, so I just start watching and observing. And so the guy's on the phone, the, the, the guy who's sort of running the shop, he's on the phone, he's telling somebody who's trying to make an order for pizza on the phone, we can't take your order because our system is down. Can you call back later? And he hangs up the phone, he turns to this elderly couple that came in, and then they just say, we want pizza. And he goes, I'm sorry, but our systems are down, and I can't give you pizza. There's the pizza. The pizza is like three inches away from this couple. He cannot figure out how to get it out of this case and into their hands. And the couple is sort of going along with this thinking this must be a crisis of epic proportions. So we will be, we'll be kind and, and patient and we will wait. It's Williamsburg. They're waiting. Okay, they do a lot of waiting, and they're patient in Williamsburg. Okay, so they're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And this guy's like, oh, I wish we're waiting for somebody to get the system back up. He can't figure out how to get pizza from here to there. Any business school in America, not just Harvard Business School, will say to you, give the people the pizza. It costs you about a buck. You've, you've won a customer for life. But no, these people stand there, and after a while, you know, because it's in Williamsburg and they want to be nice, they just sort of walked out the door like this, real slow, you know, just walked out. So they were gone, and that's when God showed up. And this, you cannot make this up. So God sends a bus right in front of the restaurant, and the bus has a word that's in the New Testament on it, and the word is agape. Move the bus. There you go. Agape. God sends a bus that says, love is the only thing that's going to save you, pizza man. Just love the people enough to give the pizza away. If you have to have a bus come and remind you of that, you're in trouble. But does the bus really, I, I quickly got my camera out. I got a couple shots of the bus. But sometimes life doesn't work because of people. And you see this all the time. Sometimes life doesn't work because you are one of those people. Uh, and that's what this book is about. This is one of my favorite books. I, I talked about it in a summer book club about five or six years ago. Beth Moore, Get Out of That Pit. And she just tells it like it is. And in her fourth chapter, she says this. When you jump into a pit, you can jump in. That's the third and final way you can land in a pit. Before you take the plunge into that pit, you can be well aware that, you, you can be aware that what you're about to do is wrong probably even foolish. But for whatever reason, the escalating desire to do it exceeds the good sense not to. 
Unlike the second route into a pit, you didn't just slip in before you knew what was happening. You had time to think, and then you did exactly what you meant to do, even if the pit turned out to be deeper and the consequences higher than you hoped. In other words, you got to this pit, and you said, I know it's wrong, I know it's bad, I know it's probably not going to be good, but I'm going to have some kind of a weird faith that after I jump in the airspace between me and the bottom, that some miracle is going to happen, and what looks really bad isn't going to be so bad, but obviously it is really bad, and I know it's bad, I'm jumping in anyway. Don't start squirming and think I'm about to talk down to you. Believe me, I've jumped into my share of pits. Based on the results of the three test groups I mentioned in chapter 1, I can assure you that so have most other people. If I ask you the same questions, you too could likely raise a hand of affirmation to all three pit landing scenarios. Yep, at some point in our lives, we've been thrown into a pit, and another, we've slipped into a pit, and at still another, we hauled off, aimed, and jumped square into the bullseye of a pit. Sometimes life doesn't work because you just do it to yourself. Sometimes you can point the finger at somebody else because they're just not paying attention. Michael Phelps, if you want to read a story about life doesn't work because you are the person, look at this story on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It just came out. It's about Michael Phelps went to rehab. He dug this huge pit with his own hands. Hero, Olympic hero, 22 gold medals. He couldn't figure out how to make his life work. And it wasn't until he did what he really didn't want to do and he did what people told him to do that he understood what he needed to do with his life. It's an amazing story of somebody saying, yep, I did it to myself. It's an amazing story of somebody saying, yep, I I dug the pit and then I jumped into it myself. It's also an amazing story about what his friends said about him toward the end of the article. There's like one little phrase that contains volumes of truth in it. So if you want to hear a real life story about life's not working and you did it to yourself, it's right there. Sometimes life doesn't work because of evil in the world. And we just see this every time we turn on the news and every time we open up the newspaper, somebody's hurting somebody, doing some terrorist act that is an abomination upon human beings. Uh, It's just awful. There was evil in the garden with a young couple, and it broke everything. And that theme of of evil and, and lies has just rolled down through history, and every century has its share of the evil and the lies. It's not just the 21st century. It was the 20th century, and it goes all the way back to the time of Jesus and before. It was evil that put him on a cross, and God took that evil and turned it into something that we call grace. We call love, agape, love. But sometimes life doesn't work because of the evil that comes against us. Let's get more personal. Sometimes life doesn't work because you need a new perspective on God that takes you, to a, that takes you deeper into spiritual maturity than you've ever been before. Let me give you a little story I call Maturity 101. Maturity 101, first, God gives me what I want and I am happy. 
God is my friend, and I feel good. And at the early stages of our faith, we kind of we like living there. Then God is making me into my best self, and it's challenging. And, and, and that's an important place to be because I believe in the fact that we should stretch and grow and become our best selves, that God has something for us that's bigger, that's more important than, than what we realize. And we need to discover that and find that and stretch toward it. And I love to teach you those things. And, and especially during our relationship series coming up in January and February, I love to teach you about that stuff. But if I end there, if I end there, I have missed the mark because maturity must go to this level. God is shaping me into Christ-likeness, and it hurts. That's where the action really is for the Christian. It's not about always getting what you want, finding you know, the, whatever at the end of the rainbow. It, it's about knowing a God who cares so much about you that sometimes to make you like Christ, he has to walk with you while you hurt, while you grieve, while you fall down and you struggle to get back up again, but he never leaves you. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way. If with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention in adoration before Christ your master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. It's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to be punished for doing bad. That's what Christ did definitively, suffered because of other sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive to bring us to God. When God is shaping you into Christ-likeness, there are moments when that's going to be painful and difficult. And I, I use these, these six words when I think about this, when I look at this passage. Less ego, more awareness, ultimate sacrifice. Less ego, more awareness, ultimate sacrifice. It's not about me I need to pay attention to what's really going on and what God's doing, what God's expecting. And I need to be able to let go of everything that keeps me from being like Christ, even if I think it, it, it belongs to me, which it, it never does. I need to let go and let God do what he wants to do. And when you have less ego, when you have more awareness, and, and when you have ultimate sacrifice, you're, you're in that school of maturity that takes you to deeper places. It's not enough to, to have God make you happy and, and God to be your friend and to be your best self. You've got to get to the place where somewhere inside you reach out for being like Christ and you say, God, do what, whatever it takes to, to make Christ to let Christ be formed in me. Brene Brown was a speaker at this summer's Leadership Summit, and she's got a new book coming out, Rising Strong. It came out, um, and, and in her talk, she mentioned that everything in life is kind of like three acts. Act one, act two, act three. Act one is where you become aware that, that something's not working, that something in your life isn't working, and you're very aware of it. In act three, 
There's a resolution to everything. And that's why she backed into Act 2 and said, Act 2 is really the dark place. It's the hard place to be because everything is out of whack. Everything is disconnected. You have all these various pieces and, and, and you don't know how they fit together. You don't know who should be in and who should be out and what's up and what's down. It's in Act 2 that everything matters. When, when Elijah got to his Act 3, you know where he was? He was in a chariot of fire being brought to heaven by God. You don't have to worry when you're in a chariot of fire being brought to heaven by God. But this chapter in 1 Kings 19, this is his act two. He can't figure it out. His life isn't working. He doesn't know what to do. He wants to give up. He wants to throw in the towel. He wants God just to take him out. He says, nobody's left. Nobody cares. I'm the only one here. Oh God, what are we going to do now? And God gives him three when life's not working strategies that pull his life back together. And if your life is not working in any area right now, you need these three strategies too. And I've needed them in my life at times that have been act too dark and disconnected. Number one, you have to find work that stirs your heart and changes the world to find work that stirs your heart. You might have a job and your job might stir your heart and your job might change the world, but what if it doesn't? If it doesn't, then God is saying, find something to do for me and with me that stirs the passion of your heart and makes the world a better place. And that might be in the church or it might be in a mission. It might be doing something in the community. It might be doing something outside of the country. But each and every one of us, if, if our life is going to work, we have to find something that stirs our hearts and, and makes our hearts pound for something that's great and that's holy and that's good. And that changes something. It changes somebody, somehow, some way. Got to look for that. It's, it's there all the time. It's always right there. But look for that clue of this is what makes your heart pound fast and, and big. It makes your heart burn to do something. The second strategy for when life's not working is find someone to pour your life into. God did something really interesting there in his prescription for Elijah. He said, there's a kid. His name is Elisha. He's just working on a farm with his dad. And, and I want you to, to get him and pour your life into him. Teach him everything that I've taught you. And, and that's the only way sometimes the younger generation will learn is when you take the time to be with them and to walk with them and to pour your life into them from your perspective. And it's not a, a talk down, it's a talk with. And it's not, let me tell you about the good old days, it's I want to hear what's going on in your life and, and maybe I'll be able to, to give you some of the wisdom from my life from the time when I was where you are right now. It's that kind of a relationship where you're pouring into somebody. And that can happen in men's ministry, it could happen in women's ministry, it could happen in student ministry, it could happen in young adult ministry, it can happen in your home, it can happen in your neighborhood, it can happen in so many ways. But you have to have that, that strategy 
so that your life will work, that you know you're pouring into someone everything that God has taught to you. And then third, and I put it this way because I was looking for a more creative way to position it. Connect at the level of the eyeballs. Connect at the level of the eyeballs. What does he say to Elijah? What does God say? Elijah has said two times, very forcefully, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. There's nobody here but me. I'm the only one. I I love you. Nobody else loves you. Everybody's gone their, their way. It's just me and you. You might as well take me out now. Just me. God says, no, Uh uh-uh. There are 7,000 people, Elijah, who still love me, who haven't fallen for the worship of the world, who haven't fallen for things that are false and untrue and for lies. And what he's saying there is, you got to get with those people. You got to get eyeball to eyeball with those people who love me because they're going to love you and they're going to love you out of your life's not working zone so that you'll feel care and you'll feel like your, your life matters relationally. And sometimes when we do that, it's not just about, about being in church. It can be just sitting at a picnic table with, with good friends who believe and have faith in Christ. And you enjoy that time together. It could be having a dinner together. It could be going to a, a beach together. Or, or like the young adults just went on a camping trip together. It's just eyeball to eyeball when you connect at the level of the eyeballs. It helps you to get out of yourself so that you you realize you're really not alone. And your life works because other people want your life to work in concert with their life working too. One of my favorite quotes, and I just picked this one up recently, comes from Mark Batterson in a book called If. I'd rather have one God idea than a thousand good ideas. I'd rather have one God idea than a thousand good ideas. Good ideas are a dime a dozen. You can think and say, I can have a good idea for this. I have a good idea for, for going back to work this week. You know, good ideas, you can have them. But one God idea can change you from having a life that isn't working to a life that has integrity and purpose, a life that has a real heartbeat and a real pulse, a life that's passionate about living fully for the, the world that God gave himself for, that God gave his son for. Find work that stirs your heart and changes the world. Find someone to pour your life into. Connect at the level of the eyeballs. Sometimes life doesn't work because of people, and sometimes it doesn't work because you are the people, and sometimes it's just evil in the world, and sometimes it doesn't work because you have to go to the level of God shaping Christ into your heart and your mind and your soul. So where is the place where your life isn't working? Where is that place right now? Find that place. Ask yourself the question, what am I doing here? Figure out which strategy is your strategy. Which strategy is missing? Figure out how you can engage at a more Christ-like level of formation in your heart, mind, and soul. You see, God has made a divine career of showing up at remote outposts. Burning bushes and barns seem to be pretty good locations to him. Whatever it takes to get your attention. At the intersection of fear and exhaustion, he arrives to 
get you moving again, breathing again, hoping again, praying again. What are you doing here is the place to start. Smell any bread baking? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for such an ancient story that speaks so clearly into our lives. Our lives don't work so often. And sometimes we can say, well, it's because of that person. Sometimes it's just we dug a pit and we jumped in it. Or sometimes it's, it's because evil was here lurking in the garden. It continues to be here in the world wreaking its havoc upon people and families and nations. Father, sometimes we just need to say, God, form Christ in me whatever that takes. So Father, with humility, we come before you today. Let us be your people. Let us become the church. Let us be the light in the world that you have called us to be. Let it be done by your power, the only true power in the universe. We honor you. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.